Wolf, you've been with us uh, the past few weeks. Uh, we've been covering the book of 2 Corinthians, and in particular, we've been covering chapters 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians. And this section really focuses on the theology and heart of, of giving, uh, of, of giving gener- uh, generously. And upon a quick initial glance of reading this passage, or listening to it earlier, it seems as if Paul is bringing up something somewhat like plain, uneventful point of discussion, or like the younger generation when they read their Bibles, there's some stories that really stick out to them or very memorable, you know, sticky phrases, you know, the verses. Uh, but sometimes when, you know, the younger generation is reading the Bible or they have uh, like this term that they use for something that's very kind of, yeah, whatever, it's called mid. Like, say, oh, that's, that's mid, you know, or that's, that's basic, you know. And I feel like that's sometimes how we sometimes approach uh, this passage before us today. Because here Paul is addressing the Corinthian church of believers about a known collection of funds to help bless the believers of the church in Jerusalem. But he's not talking about the heart of generous giving. He's not even talking about the elements of how you should be giving. So it can be very easy for us to to kind of lose sight of the significance of this passage here. That in a total of two chapters on giving, he nevertheless devotes a significant portion to discuss how a financial collection, how this generous giving by the believers of this church in Corinth should be handled, how it should be administrated, the logistics of it. So in other words, getting into the nitty-gritty logistics of who's going to deliver, who's going to administer this financial gift from one group of believers to another. And it's the sort of thing that many of us could probably care less about, couldn't care less about. Processes, details of who's going to be assigned to handle this generous money that the believers in Corinth have given. Well, many of us may not care about this, or even, even if we do care about like money matters and the details about that, you know, some of us don't really care for that. But what these verses make readily apparent is that this administration of money, how the financial gift is collected and handled, actually really matters. It really matters just as much as the motivation of those who have given this gift, Lord willing, from a joyful heart. Now, why, you might ask? Because having the right motivation to give is great, as we've learned already in chapter 8. But you cannot administer and handle that gift well if you don't care about how it's handled, the logistics. Because sometimes good intentions can sometimes lead to bad outcomes. Having believers give generously doesn't necessarily guard that collection from unintended harm. In fact, more harm than good may actually take place. Because if a financial gift donated by generous hearts is provided, yet that money is not handled with much care and attention, It could lead to delays. Uh, It it can be viewed as a lack of transparency uh, for those who have donated. But here, nothing about that ever again, as if that money was ever collected. Was it ever given to its intended party? And things may actually turn out for uh, for the worse than if you never collected that gift in the first place. So we probably heard stories, or maybe even you have heard firsthand experience of organizations or groups who poorly handle generosity of donors or those who have given with the hope that their generosity will be used for a good cause, yet there's a lot of speculation and question whether it's actually led to that. 
Maybe some of you have experienced that in churches, hopefully not here at sunset, but some of you may even experience that in your own place of unemployment. Poorly administrated generosity or money that's poorly handled can sometimes be worse than having no money at all. Now, why, you might ask? Because when money that is charitably given is administered poorly, it leads believers to be suspicious. Accusations may, may be leveled. And even disappointment for those who have given faithfully now question whether they can rightly in confidence moving forward in the future give to that cause, trust in those people who have initiated that request for money in the first place. Maybe suspicions or questions like, where's this money even going? And sadly, this happens in churches as it happens in Christian as well as secular worldly organizations and groups. Perhaps there's no follow-through as to whether the funds you were encouraged you contribute actually got and met their needs. Was it misappropriated? Was it embezzled? Perhaps bad accounting procedures. So there's a lack of clarity and organizing where that money goes. Significant amounts of waste. Questionable amounts spent on matters that are unclear as to how they even align to the, the mission and the vision of the church. But the fact that Paul dedicates these verses on how to handle and administer this collection to make sure it goes, goes to its intended audience, what this shows, what this clearly demonstrates is that this is an important matter. He desired for the Corinthian believers to know and have unsettled confidence that the money that they graciously gave would be handled rightly, that their money would be stewarded for God's glory. And that brings us to the first lesson I want us to, to see from God's word when it comes to handling money in the church from these verses. The point, first point is this. The first lesson is this. Handling money in the church, or just handling money in general, is a spiritual issue, is a spiritual matter. As we look at who Paul puts in charge to administrate and handle this collection and distribution of this gift, I want, to, I want you to notice that the, the, the people that were charged with this task, that, that were appointed with this important responsibility, Paul entrusted the stewardship of giving to three godly, spiritually responsible, respected men. Say this with me. Three spiritual men, okay? Or three godly men. Not the three stooges, okay? For those of you who are old enough to remember that goofy trio uh, of this beloved American slapstick black and white comedy. Uh, I'm not that, I'm not even that old, but I don't know why I know this. But anyways, Titus, who was mentioned on this list first, had a zealous devotion for the Lord, but also for the believers in Corinth. So the kind of care and love that Paul has for these believers, which they should have known, experienced already, Paul says now with confidence, Titus genuinely cares for you men and women in Christ in the same way. So what that means, as verse 16 indicates, is that the same commitment that Paul has for the Corinthians in seeking their highest good, Titus will also seek their highest good. He's of the same mind. Here's a spiritual man to help administrate money. Yes, the same Titus who was a close and trusted ministry brother and partner for Paul. Uh, the same Titus who was entrusted to, to develop and appoint leaders of the, of the, of the churches, uh, of the church in Crete. One of the purposes of why the book of Titus was written from Paul to Titus. Here's one of Paul's best guys who was involved even at the beginning of this collection. 
As chapter 8, verse 6 says, Paul wanted Titus to oversee this task. And here in verse 17, he is eager. He's, he's passionate about seeing this spiritual task to its completion. His heart is in it. He wasn't doing it out of compulsion or, or guilt or, or peer pressure. Like, oh man, I don't, I don't know how I, how I really feel about this. You know, like administrating, dealing with money, you know, like I, I like to seek the better gifts, you know, like I just wanted, I just want to teach the Bible, you know, disciple counsel. But I don't really care for all that other stuff. He didn't need to be goaded into going by Paul, nor did he have a complaining attitude. So he was encouraged by Paul to go. Yet Titus went of his own court. He took it upon himself as a servant of God, seeking to love God's people to go. So Paul wants him to go, and Titus wants to go. And so there's this beautiful and unified desire to complete this good work. Sending Titus to lead this envoy to the Corinthians who will handle this collection of money until the moment that amount is all collected and reaches its final destination to the believers in Jerusalem. And so who we entrusted for this task was sending out the best, okay? In our day, it would be the equivalent or kind of like appointing one of your elders or well-respected spiritual leaders to handle such an important matter. It's like sending your best. Paul wasn't like, oh, you're, you're, you're breathing? You have a pulse? You know, you're a warm body? Great, you're just the person we need, you know? We'll send you to collect this bag of money from the Corinthians and have you deliver this large amount of currency to the church there? No, no, Paul said, no, we're, we're not just going to put anyone to handle this money because this money isn't, isn't just strictly money. This is, not, this is not merely financial administration. Even the handling of money was a spiritual matter that matters to God. And this is for the sake of loving and caring for our fellow brethren in Christ. This is for the sake of the kingdom. And we need one of our best spiritual leaders to handle this matter of finance and fundraising. Now at this point, I want to draw your attention to the second man Paul mentions that will come alongside Titus in handling this money collection. In verse 18, uh, we are given a specific name, only that he's referred to here as brother. Now, when we come to verse 18, we kind of skip, escape the fact that Paul mentions this brother was famous, okay? Famous. You see, the notion of famous in our day or being a celebrity sometimes has a sort of negative connotation for good reasons too or carries a lot of baggage, especially in Christian circles. Why? Because of the, the numerous amount of news or podcasts of all the questionable cultural trends in e evangelicalism, like celebrity pastors and, and their fallout from megachurches, or pastors known for, for more for what, what luxury clothing and shoes that they wear, that they would be featured on the Instagram account, preachers and sneakers. But being a celebrity or being famous is not inherently bad in itself. You can be famous for good things and for good reasons too. And this brother was famous in, ch in the churches, not for a sense of fashion with ripped skinny jeans, not famous of all the connections that he had with powerful people in high places. Rather, this brother that Paul includes to accompany Titus, he's famous for his preaching, preaching the gospel. And when you preach the gospel rightly, you make much of Christ, not yourself. And so the character of a gospel preacher, one who heralds and proclaims Christ, desires to, to glorify and lift up and magnify Christ. It's the kind of guy that truly desires that people leave a Sunday service thinking, 
wow, what a great God that we have and that we worship. Not, wow, what a great sermon, what a great preacher that was. And so this brother was one who made much of Christ. That's not to make Christ known to all he preached to. It's like evangelist at his heart. This is what he was famous for. His character and esteem throughout the Christian world in the service of the gospel. The third person that is mentioned, the second brother mentioned, that will complete this trio group is in verse 22. Again, we're not given a specific name as to who these two brothers uh, are who joined Titus. But again, here we see what qualifies them for handling this task has to do with their spiritual maturity and their character. This brother was tested, but also meant he has shown to be qualified for the collection of this, this collection task because of the outcome and trust built through time, testing of character, observation, through partnership and serving alongside Paul in his ministry. So this brother was tested, but also meant he, he, he was shown because of his reliability, his trustworthiness. This was likely evident through time and consistency by spending life on life, a lot of time amongst other spiritual leaders of the church in a variety of situations, observing their character. So one of the clear principles laid out is that money matters in the church aren't strictly just money matters. Because, in, because they take on a more significant meaning because money belongs, even in the church, belongs to God. They matter in God's economy, in Christ's church. It's a spiritual matter attended to and led by spiritual people. So there's this connection between money and spirituality that's trying to be established here. Money matters. Administrative, uh, sorry, administration of finance and money in the church ought to be led by godly people, okay? Christ-like people. That's why in, verses, in 1 Timothy 3, where Paul lays out the qualification for church leaders, such as deacons or elders, one of the qualifications has to do with money matters because it's tied to one's character, how you handle money. Elders are not to be lovers of money. Deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Why? Because that character qualification is a reflection of how one views and handles money and is also a reflection of their maturity spiritual maturity. We also see that in Acts 6 during the days of the early church when there were widows being neglected in the daily distribution, the disciples appointed men of, not just any men, good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom. So what does that all mean for us today, brothers and sisters? Well, when it comes to handling the generous giving of church members, we want godly spiritual people overseeing, leading in these matters. Spiritual character matters even when it comes to handling, distributing money. Why? Because it's a stewardship for God to go f to further his gospel agenda and his kingdom. And so Paul's criteria for appointing the, the administration of this collection, it wasn't based on worldly success with when it comes to money, not the amount of money or riches you have. Or put it another way, as a church, we don't just want business, sorry, business, I said busy, busy, business savvy people, okay, accountants, you know, on like serving as deacons or finance committees or areas of service where money matters are decided upon 
those, those are good skills to have, have business savvy, financial sense, like accounting. All these things are, you know, good and, good and important things that we can have. But we also want people who are godly, spiritually minded, kingdom minded to oversee these things. Because godly people reflect a vibrant and growing walk with Christ as they're conformed to his character. Now, let me be a little bit more nuanced here. I'm not like anti-business, okay? Nor am I like blind to the reality that there's a diversity of gifts and skill sets that exists among the congregation here at Sunset and how God has made you. And that's also probably reflected in your interests, your passions, right? That leads to the specific vocation, career path that you're on. You should use those things for the good and benefit of the church. It's good to recognize that those who have an ability to be good with administering money, tracking money, stewardship of those resources, those are good skills to have. But what I am saying is that the priority, the criteria for selecting people to lead in various capacities in the church, especially when it comes to money and handling the stewardship of what God's people have generously given, that task should be entrusted to Christ-like men and women. Not someone who is ungodly and immature, though he or, me, she, he or she may have a track record of monetary success or specialized knowledge in finance. So why is this important? Because the church needs spiritually mature men and women to handle money since this is what is pleasing to God, but also how we love others well. It compelled Paul and the men that this handling of the collection had to be done rightly and with integrity. Because at the end of the day, this collection was about meeting the needs of believers in Jerusalem who were feeling the effects of a great famine that affected this region for years. And while we see this lesson play out in the context of the church, where men known for their integrity and doing what is right in God's eyes and for his glory, this connection between finances and money being a spiritual issue of importance should challenge us as well, personally. Even if we aren't leaders handling church finances, why? Because the Bible teaches us that how we manage and handle our finances, how generous, generous we are towards others, especially to other believers, those in the body of Christ, it's an ultimate reflection of stewardship. It's an ultimate reflection of a spiritual matter that God cares, cares very much about. I think for some of us Christians, we can become sort of short-sighted in this area of our life. We can sort of live in a way where spiritual matters we think are important to the Lord are things like serving, a fellowship, a Bible study, and prayer. And these are all priorities, great things that we should all endeavor to grow and be involved in. But those are the only spiritual matters that pertain to our discipleship. We can sometimes wrongly think that, right? But money and finances and how we handle our money, our finances, how we administer our own money, the things we are generous to give or, or withhold, well, that's not a spiritual matter, right? It's just the practical life stuff that have no bearing on my, my relationship with God. But here we see otherwise. Giving generously as an act of worship to support the church in carrying out its mission, meeting the needs of other believers, they shouldn't just be an afterthought. Worshiping God shouldn't get reduced to merely just showing up as a warm body at church, listening to a message, talking to your friends, and just leaving. 
But worship service embodies all of that, the teaching, the fellowship, but also the giving, giving of the resources that God has given us richly. And so we can also fall prey to this huge oversight in our lives. And so maybe the Holy Spirit has challenged you today, as was demonstrated with this handling of money of, uh, for God's glory through this collection in Paul's day. Because how we use our money and how we trust our leaders to handle that money for God's glory and kingdom purposes matter. It's an exercise of faith for all of us. One of the most impactful verses for me in my 20s, you know, when I started working after college, you know, first job making not big bucks, but making some bucks, you know, and not having to pay for college loans or any of that. A start, like a fresh start, right? And so as a, a young buck in my young 20s, you know, one of the things was like, oh man, I have all this income now for myself, you know? I used to get allowance as a kid. But now I have this, all this money. I could, the first thing, and I told my friend at, at church, like, oh, the first thing I did with my first paycheck was buy a large screen TV. And then you know what he did? He immediately like, oh, okay, okay, all right. He handed me a Christian book, like, as it always goes, because I was so immature back then. Here's a book called The Treasure Principle. It's based on Matthew 6, verses 19 to 21, where it talks about not storing treasures on earth, but treasures in heaven, right? But the principle lies in the last verse in verse 21, where it says that wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so there's this connection between what we value, even the material, the, 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 the money, uh, finances, what we value is a reflection of our heart. And I was challenged, was I storing up treasures on earth or laying up treasures in heaven? Being concerned about God's kingdom, God's purposes, living not just for myself, so that's the first point. The second point is handling money should be done with integrity, with integrity. Verses 20 to 21 reads, we take this course so that no one should blame, blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. Paul's reason for having men of character, but not just one, but multiple men of character, was because he understood that handling money, especially as leaders in the church, should be handled with integrity. In fact, Paul says that it should be handled in a way that no one should be able to blame them. By having several men handle this, there will be a greater degree of accountability, right? By having several men, there's witnesses in the process. And so we have to keep in mind that back then, they didn't have this sophisticated, convenient way to track the movement of money, okay? We have bank statements, right? We have Venmo records, right? We have records on our Zelle where we can just instantly just give, uh, you know, finance money to, to other people without having to use actual dollar bills or, or coins, fiat currency. Yet back then they had coins. So you imagine this collection of money through a long extended period of time with many members of the church, even larger than Sunset Church. The church in Corinth, believers, probably estimated to have several thousand believers, okay? How would they handle these, these coins, right? 
They had to have the right person. Who's to say Titus or one of the brothers, even hypothetically, assuming the worst about these guys, okay, even though that's not right, may have gotten a little hungry on their journey by, by ship from Corinth to Jerusalem. Maybe a quick overnight stop for a local lodging, you know, where he may or may not, may or may not use the, a coin or two from the collection for a grilled fish, you know, or a bougie ancient breakfast with bread, fig, olives, and cheese, ancient equivalent to our avocado toast, readily available at your local cafe lo located here in SF. But that possibility of blame or accusation wouldn't even be credibly possible because Paul goes further by sending out one, not two, but three guys in total as the envoy of this collection. You see, the way this collection was handled was completely above reproach. It wasn't, oh, just trust me. All the money that was given is what we have here. It wasn't going to cut it for Paul. There would be the utmost confidence that all the money collected down to the last coin would be accounted for. And all the coins collected, not missing one or two or several, would take place. Now, just to be clear, to be above reproach to be, is to be without blame. It doesn't mean that you'll never face criticism in your life or accusations leveled against you, nor does it mean you act only in a way where you desire to please every single person. But what Paul means by the phrase, no one should blame us, means that no accusation, no claim made about impropriety or wrongdoing actually sticks. Being blameless doesn't mean you don't encounter slanderous or gossip remarks about you ever in life. But being blameless means none of those slanderous, slanderous remarks or gossip reflects who you truly are or what you've done or haven't done. In other words, being blameless, having an impeachable character, means that there's no legitimacy of fact to the accusations or assumptions made about you. They don't stick because they don't reflect the reality, the truthfulness about who you are, how you conduct yourselves, how you live your life. And so since we're on this topic, I thought it'd be helpful to inform all of you just how money is administered and handled with integrity here at Sunset. Now, I only have like a year here, okay? I've been here for a little bit over a year, but I've been able to watch and observe and look at the different processes that take place in the handling of money here at this church. And I do also have a background in business administration, know some general accounting principles, finances, things like that you know, still like dealing with budgets is still frustrating. But the point I'm trying to make is we have these kind of protocols because we seek here at Sunset to handle money with integrity. For example, all the check requests or reimbursements must be requested and approved by two different Sunset staff members or leaders, such as a director or a pastor before it's processed by accounting. Receipts or invoices even from like meals and stuff, must be submitted with when a reimbursement is requested. Any check made over a certain threshold or amount between 3000 and 5000 requires not just any census staff or leader to approve, but approval by a pastor. Any check or reimbursement over $5,000, which is usually for like large, like lodging, retreats and stuff like that, requires the approval of the church, church's chief financial officer or a pastor, elder, board chairman. Okay. Also, none of the church staff nor pastors have direct access to Sunset Church's bank account. 
Yes, not even not even me. Right? <laughs> Meaning none of us can directly pull money from the church. So why do we have these protocols in place, systems in place? Well, certainly part of the reason is to guard the money and the finances of the church and have certain measures that minimizes the potential conflicts of interest or the worst case scenario imaginations that we might have and to try to prevent and prevent the possibility of those kind of, um, those kind of uh, uh, things. But realize we do this so that there isn't even a hint or opportunity for misconduct when it comes to money. That kind of mindset has shaped the protocols of Sunset Church, the handling of money, because it comes from a posture of wanting to honor the Lord. But as verse 21 says, also in the sight of men. That means we conduct the handling of money, not only in a manner that's, that honors God, honest before God's sight, but also observable by other believers and the watching world. Why? Because we understand that it's not our money at the end of the day. It's ultimately God's money, which has been collected by the generosity and joyful giving of members of the church for God's glory and purposes. Keep in mind that while this lesson about handling money with integrity applies especially to leadership in the church, integrity with money applies to each of us personally as well in our relationship to God. Between you and God. In other words, we're called to be above reproach in how we handle the money of God, has the money that God has blessed us with, entrusted us with. Now, I think on a basic level, we understand that handling the, our money with integrity means not doing things illegally, right? With our money or trying to cheat the IRS, okay? Right? Or let's say you're shopping and paying cash and you're given an excess amount of change. Will you be honest in those situations and give back the misappropriate amount, the misappropriate amount of change? Or you will, will you pocket that for yourself? It's like, hey, that's their mistake. That's their problem. I think these are a few examples that probably come to mind for some of you when you think about financial integrity. But realize that integrity before God means we are coming before God honestly about how we have handled his resources for his glory, for God's fame, out of a desire to worship God because he truly matters to us and who we value and worship in life. Not the idol of wealth, finding security and comfort in, in riches. You see, one of the realities that's evident in this passage is just how Titus and the two brothers were to conduct themselves with respect to this money collection. They were to see themselves, just as Paul saw them, as stewards marked by integrity when it comes to these, uh, the handling of these assets. So they were administering the process, but they are no, uh, by no means the owner of these assets. They're stewards. They're custodians who function as managers of God's assets or under managers for God's purposes. And that's how I think this passage should really hit home for us. And what I mean by that is that all of us are stewards of God's resources. All of us must see our money, our finances in the same way. We're just stewards. To be a steward means you've been entrusted with resources, assets, money. But because Jesus is king for you, 
the Lord of Lords, we're keenly aware that we don't ultimately own it. God owns it. Some of us have probably made investment in our lives, right? Perhaps you have a financial advisor or someone who handles your investments in the stock markets for retirement purposes or something or real estate. Now, let's say the person, just using a fictitious example, illustration, let's say that this person who you've agreed to invest your money in stocks and bonds, you notice something that's not right. Beyond the normal expense fees that a financial advisor usually charges uh, in actively managing maybe your portfolio, you find out that your asset value has gone down dramatically through a period of time. But not because the underlying investments have actually gone down in value, but because the money you thought would be invested in those assets you desired to be involved in or um, to buy in on, on was instead misappropriated into other places. The financial advisor decided to spend that money on a joyride in exotic sports car rental and eat meals at Michelin star restaurants in Yountville. Now, I'm sure if any of you have experienced this for yourself, or if you were in this investor's shoes who actually owned the assets, you'd call out the financial advisor for stealing and robbing you, right? Like, that's not right. You can't do that. It's not your money. You were only supposed to, to manage to steward the assets I entrusted to you. But rather, that person spent it on themselves. And it's kind of scandalous, this kind of illustration, because they didn't possess ownership of it. They were supposed to only see themselves as ones who help, to help you grow these assets, right? To be a steward. Well, how many of us have done the same with God's assets? In a way, quote-unquote, rob God. Where we view our assets, our money, as strictly just for ourselves. My agenda, my future goals, my future plan or dream that I think will yield a very comfortable life. Rather than being eternally minded, kingdom minded, rather than be considerate and generous towards others. You see, how we handle our money and finances, it's a spiritual issue because it reveals what we treasure in our hearts but also reflects our integrity before God. It's a litmus test. It's a barometer as to whether we are trusting in Christ or instead placing our faith in money and maybe even our own wisdom in how we're handling it for our own selfish gain. After all, as believers, Christ has lavished his grace upon us richly through his son, Jesus Christ. So how we handle and minister our finances for ourselves for the good and benefit of others, for the church, for your potential spouse, for your potential children. These are all areas where money flows and goes, right? But where is God in all of this? In your area of life when it comes to money? This is just a few examples of how money can be stewarded. But the under, underlying question is this. Are you exercising faith and trust in how you are handling your money? Is it for glorifying Christ? Or are you placing your faith and trust in some, something or someone else? Do you handle your money in a way that reflects that God is the ultimate owner of all you have? You're just a steward. I want us to bring us now to our final point this, this morning. How money is handled? Third point, how, how, how money is handled? 
is a reflection of a generous or selfish heart. Verse 24 reads, So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So on the glowing and positive words, Paul has full confidence that Titus and these two brothers are going to handle this money rightly, with integrity, right? But now he says, give proof before the churches. In other words, all this talk about generosity, handling money with integrity for this collection has a specific goal in mind. Not that all this talk and ge- about generosity would merely result in fun facts about generosity, but little to no expression of it. The hope is that believers would respond to, to Paul's request to contribute and help meet these expressed needs that will ultimately glorify God and express a tangible care for others. Why? Because their generous response would give proof of their love of the ones sent to collect from them, but also proof of their love for God and their love for fellow brethren and sisters in Christ, especially those in Jerusalem, the recipients of this collection in the first place. Just like the believers in Macedonia who gave generously out of their poverty, Paul has been boasting to other churches about the believers in Corinth that, hey, they're also going to give generously, okay? Don't you worry. It's not just you, church in Macedonia. It's not just uh, this church or that church, but the church in Corinth as well. And so Paul has been boasting to these other churches about how the Corinthians too will meet this generous uh, need, this important cause. You see, true heart change that understands how generously God has dealt with us as unworthy sinners by his grace and saving us leads us to be generous to other people. And it should never just be upon us and leave where we just leave, where it's just a theory. It's just a, a mental exercise that you just passively listen to and give little or no thought about when it comes to application. You see, just as these spiritual leaders were charged with communicating and ministering this money collection, the expectation was that believers would joyously respond favorably to the requests of these leaders who were above reproach. Because there's no longer any question of impropriety or mistrust in in how these spiritual leaders conduct themselves and the kind of requests that they make on behalf of the, the church for others. The money and finances are handled with integrity and care, knowing the leaders seek to steward it for God. It's for God, right? You have no doubt about it that your spiritual leaders think that way. Well, if that's the case, that your spiritual leaders are kingdom-minded, seeking to glorify God, what more hesitations do you have? What more reservations? What valid reasons would the Corinthians have in ignoring this request and turning the other way as if they never heard or were ignorant of what Paul speaks about. This comes from a spiritual leader who dearly loves them. So to not give generously at this point and help out at this point isn't a matter of guilt or uh, guilt-tripping Christians. No, Paul's point is that responding in generosity with this collection is proof of your love for your spiritual leaders and God and others. Because how you respond is a reflection of your heart. 
of your generosity or even maybe selfishness or so focused and inward in how you spend your resources. Either one who, who loves generously is a proof of your love or a selfish heart. Proof that this message, this understanding of financial stewardship hasn't really hit home for you yet. That there's still room for you to grow. Opportunity for you to be teachable as you give in faith and with generous hearts. Brothers and sisters, as a church, when we hear of needs or opportunities to support and bless others, just as we heard earlier about the, uh, the Camacho family who is in need of this car, and the church has been supporting them for over two decades. And here's a very tangible way to bless them. We sh- and the church the leaders bring this up or announce it. Hey, this is an opportunity for us to give generously. One practical application is examining yourself like, hey, God, are you stirring in my heart to be generous in, in giving maybe for this particular need that the leaders have brought up? And there is probably a multitude of different leads, initiatives that the church leaders bring up to fulfill our, our mission and vision and the real purpose for why God even still has us here on earth. As we heard earlier, to make gospel transform disciples in the city and the world. And so I pray that in our hearts, one of the things he continues to do and develop in us is a, a, a greater response when our spiritual leaders, our pastors, are, are seeking to lead us in a certain direction, that we would make it joyful for them to, to, to lead, that we would be an encouragement by how we respond. Not only just to please them, but ultimately, like, it's not about pleasing them. But it's ultimately a desire to want to honor God and a settled trust that the leaders that God has entrusted and appointed here at Sunset really are seeking your highest good, seeking God's glory, and the furtherance of his kingdom and his agenda. Will you pray with me? Father God, we thank you for just this opportunity that we can reflect upon generous giving more that we can think about what it means to be stewards and not owners over the riches to different degrees that you have entrusted to us lord help us to see ourselves such as like the parable of the talents lord that the things you have entrusted us that we may not bury it that we may not Use it selfishly, Lord, but we would consider ourselves those who want to manage it well out of a heart that wants to to please you, to further your kingdom, your agenda, for the gospel to advance, for the blessing and, and, and generosity that's shown as a demonstration and proof of love to brothers, sisters, and needs, both locally and around the world. When we hear of things, whether it's the believers who are suffering, churches burned down in, in Maui, Lahaina, Lord. Or it's hearing about other more local needs like city impact. I pray that you will continue to change our hearts, Lord. Mold our character so that how we view our money is less gripped by the things of this world, by the material things that are temporal, Lord so that we could generously, generously give 
for things that are eternal, for the blessing of others, knowing that you have dealt with each and one of us richly through your son, Jesus Christ. Pray these things in your son, Jesus' name. Amen.